My name is Brock, and this is the Dungeon Master's Toolkit Podcast. On today's episode, I talk to Justice. A couple of the topics that are covered are curating your group, and then some really fun tips on world building and describing visuals. Don't forget, we do have a design contest going on until the end of January. All you have to do is use one of the Google Forms in the show notes slash description and submit a item idea that is 250 words or less, and you'll be entered in for the first place and second place prize. And those winners will be announced around a week after this competition ends at the end of January. So you've still got some time. Think about an item that would fit in a fantasy desert metropolis and go ahead and throw your submissions out there. And with that, let's jump into the episode. Welcome, everybody. Today I have Justice with me. Welcome, Justice. Hi there. Yeah, I'm Justice Geddes. I'm a writer and narrative designer. I recently worked for Wizards of the Coast, uh, working on Magic the Gathering and Dungeons and Dragons. I've been running Dungeons and Dragons for like a decade. I write LARPs. Um, I've played all sorts of role-playing games, taught probably 150 players how to play D&D, from professors to six-year-olds. stoners and seniors alike a wide variety (laughs) of books so that's awesome how did you get started initially in the hobby well i was about 11 um and kids were playing at my middle school um and i was jealous because i thought they were much cooler than me so I got a little boxed set from the local college bookstore and i started playing with myself I was both DM and all of the players um, in my bedroom in the basement of my parents' house. So, so you started out in the solo RPG space just from the get-go. <laughs> that's uh, that's true facts. Yeah, I mean it was D and D, not intended for that. You know, it was fourth edition at the time. Um, but that's what I did for a while. Then I made my little siblings uh, play with me, uh, expanded out into all sorts of plots from there. Yeah, that is kind of the classic, right? Um, that's kind of how I got started, too, is I wanted to get into it. And then I was like, well, I don't have anybody else to play with. So uh, sister and girlfriend at the time, you're, you guys are playing a game with me. So <laughs> That's what's up. Yep. I say that my little sister is the best Dungeons & Dragons player I've ever met because she has been playing for a decade just as I've been DMing for a decade. Uh, so she's got a lot of practice. That's awesome. Are there specific things that you've uh, picked up as a dungeon master, kind of as you've been running games for the last decade or so? Um, definitely, yeah. I I have taken a very freeform uh, approach where I have run published adventures, I've run homebrew adventures, I've just tried to learn from all of the many players that I've run games for um, and learn to cater to specific interests. Lots of variety, um, but definitely some things that um, you know continue that that uh, occur in all of my different adventures. I have found it more and more important to highlight diversity, highlight uh, characters and stories of different identities um, in my plots, um, and I found it more and more 
interesting to engage with the specific identities and experiences of my players, um, write the stories that they want to experience, that they want to um, have in the foregrounds of their minds, um, and write those into my plots. Um, but I also have learned some very classic um, D&D things. I am a big advocate of the deeply strategic villain who you play just as strategically as a player plays their PC, uh, <laughs> among other things. Um, when you're trying to pull what your players kind of want to see in, in both their characters and the story, is that uh, a conversation that you have just with them about what they want, or how do you kind of pull that information out of them? Yeah, of course I have session zeros, um, like most people who run games nowadays, where we talk through the kind of game that we want to be playing, what we want our characters to look like. Um, but I try to curate my playgroups even before the session zero, where I'm very, very intentionally selecting the people that I want to be playing with. I think you'll have a far more successful adventure if you are playing with a group of people who want to be playing with each other and who have shared interests um, and a diversity of experiences that they can bring to the table. Um, so being very intentional, intentional about who I choose to play in my plots um, and talking to them, yeah, a lot beforehand about trying to make sure that I know them really well, understand who they are, what they're going to bring. Um, that you know that means making sure that i am not running tables where we have five cis white guys uh who are going to play in a certain way but making sure that i have uh diverse tables people of different gendered experiences different uh race and ethnicity experiences um all sorts of different things making sure that any table that i'm going to run a game at is going to be a healthy positive place for all involved so there's been times, right, when I've been running multiple plots at once. And, uh, for example, in college, I was the head of a gaming club, and I coordinated probably 12 weekly adventures, of which I ran five or six of them. So I would run an adventure every weekday evening, um, and I selected people signed up said they wanted to play and then i distribute them out into different groups and that meant that i got to pick choose groups that i knew these kids wanted to play in a high combat adventure and these kids were more interested in the role playing and having their little romances on the side of the plot um things like that and being able to split up people based on what their interests are, what kind of things they'll actually enjoy, and also their personalities. Some people don't get along, and they shouldn't play role-playing games together. That's <laughs> <laughs> just a fact. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, it's cool that, like, in college, you had that experience where you could kind of curate those groups. Because, I mean, you make a point. If there are people in a group that just don't mesh well with people or they're not trying to get the same thing out of the game as somebody else, then those groups or those sessions wouldn't wouldn't end very well, I feel like, or like, you know, campaign-wise. Right. Someone won't be having fun. And I think the Dungeon Master's goal frequently is to help your players and yourself have fun when you can. Um, and you're just setting yourself up to fail in that case. Um, did you find... So it sounds like you have a pretty wide... Um, array of of like types of games that you've run that's true yes right 
So with your like diverse uh, experience in running games for people, um, do you find there are certain things that tend to be common across all of the groups, even though you have very diverse uh, kind of interests in the game? To be honest, I don't think that any plot that I've run has been just the same as another. I have one homebrew plot that I'm very proud of that I constructed as a learn-to-play adventure for new players because I've um, taught so many new players how to play. And it's the a plot that I've run probably seven times um, with a different playgroup every single time, uh, fully homebrew. And each experience has looked entirely different. Each experience has focused on different things. The homebrew settings and plots that I create are designed so that the players have most of the agency, really, in what directions the plot goes, what kind of things we focus on. Uh, of course, we're going to have combat, we're going to have exploration, we're going to have role-playing. The basics of Dungeons & Dragons are universal to whichever game I'm going to be running, but I try very, very hard to make them um, as distinct as possible and cater to the specific interests, the specific interests of players. And how do you go about planning a homebrew setting like that, or or story where you can allow the players to be, you know, vastly different in the way they play through it? Yeah. Um, this is a complicated question. There's a lot of pieces, <laughs> of course. Um, but I can walk you through my world-building process a little bit. Um, I frequently start with the barest bones of an idea. You know, there's this little chunk in uh, one of my homebrew settings where I was like, wouldn't it be cool if all of the trees in the forest had souls and their souls were literal flames that lived inside the trees um and it's like wow and their lantern trunks or whatever i thought it was such a cute idea um and i just started coming up with you'd start you start with just the barest bones of an idea and then ask yourself questions over and over and over again about the idea nitpick at it you know okay um what do people do with the bark of these trees? Uh, do the trees talk and who do they talk to? Who lives with the trees? Um, ask yourself questions about the logistics of the world, about of, of the idea, the people that are connected to the idea. Um, and in writing down all of these answers, you know, in create more and more of an outline of the environment. Uh, frequently, this leads me to come up with a location, an area, and then to populate it. If I have an idea for a town, then I have to come up with, well, this town needs all of these different sorts of people, and it also needs all of these different sorts of possibilities for different kinds of players. I have to make sure that there are combat encounters built into the location, built into the idea. I have to make sure that there are a multitude of role-playing opportunities for players who are seeking different things. There need to be um, people that you're going to argue with. There need to be um, people that you're going to ally with. There need to be all sorts of different types of characters um, to appeal to whatever uh, player is going to do in that area. I think that some people who run games struggle because they set themselves um, too small of a starting idea or a location they say okay here's my village of 
just 50 people or whatever, and here are the four NPCs that I've come up with for them to interact with in this town. And they limit the possibilities for their players by choosing this startless location that's simply too small to actually function. I always recommend to people, put more big cities in your worlds and put more huge swaths of farm area where you can cross and meet all sorts of types of people. Um, expand, exp just keep asking questions that expand the environments that you're creating. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, and that makes sense, just kind of taking like a logical uh, approach to it. like, well, if this is the case, then then what does that mean for, you know, like you mentioned the bark and what would people do with the bark and, and kind of growing from there. Um, when you are prepping like NPCs and stuff, are you just writing down like tons and tons of just different like people that they can interact with and kind of like how they're connected to the location or, or is that a lot of that kind of done on the fly for you? What does that look like? I prep quite a bit. Um, the, uh, yeah, I, I think that actually among my players and uh, fellow DMs, I have a reputation for prepping way more possibilities than the players will ever actually encounter. Um, but that I think that really sets my homer up for success. I don't mind uh, doing the overprep. Um, and I don't find it to be particularly time-consuming after I've been running Dungeons & Dragons for this long. You know, I can come up with an idea for a character and um, th throw it throw it into a Google Doc or whatever um, pretty quickly. I make um, an absurd number of just lists of names, and then I will go back to the list of names. I'll like think about it another time when I don't have the list in front of me, and I'll attempt to just write out all of the list of names that I wrote down before. And as I read the names over and over again, I try and write them out. The ones that stick, the ones that I can remember every time that I come back to it, those are the ones that I know I'm going to use. And those are the characters that get fleshed out the most. Um, if something sticks in my head, it must be good. Um, so then I will write more about it. Or when it, once it's stuck in my head, I'll be like, oh, and here's a couple new details about this. So that the next time I come around to the list, I'm like, oh, that's right. This woman that I named Alesha or whatever, she has um, twin braids and this cool halberd. And she's the guard or whatever of the lighthouse or something. Um, I start coming up with these little pieces of an idea. And then every time I come back to the character, there's more to her. Um, and are these just kind of like small entries then where it's just like a couple of sentences or like how detailed do you get with these? It depends on what I'm expecting. Oftentimes when I come up with a character, I have a pretty good idea of how significant the character's interaction with the players is going to. If they're not that important, you don't need to flesh them out that much. Yeah, if you are just naming, coming up with a silhouette for the guard who's outside the lighthouse, you probably don't need a whole worksheet or whatever. Um, and I'll be honest, there's no characters that I write multiple pages on or whatever. Um, I come up with my characters, I think about them repeatedly, and eventually the things that I come up with just get stuck in my head. And the things that I remember are what becomes actually true about them. The things that I wrote down one time and then forgot about, um, uh, they're not going to be in the plot. Sure, it's just kind of what is is top of mind for you, really. Um, I think that I'm lucky to have 
the type of brain that will pull the pieces of information out um, that my players are seeking for, are looking for. A player expresses interest something, and then the idea that I had three months ago for an NPC in this town that might be relevant is the thing that comes to mind, and I'm able to work them in. Well, that's a handy uh, skill to have. <laughs> I guess. Um, I, I think so, something that's... Okay, this is a tangent, but it's fine. I think what's like super key for me for having those like pieces of a character that get stuck in my memory is the same thing that I... It's something that I try to have be true about my ideas so that they also stick in the heads of my players. Um, and frequently that means the visuals of an idea are the most important. If I can successfully describe a visual that's going to get stuck in someone's head, it's also something that's going to get stuck in my head. Um, it's this like idea of creating images that will stick, an image of a character or of a location. Um, you know, the job that I worked for Wizards of the Coast, uh, I, I was a visual writer. I basically wrote concepts for characters and for locations and things that would then get turned into art by artists. So my job was to make something oh, okay. as easy to understand in a visual manner. It's, it's, it's basically commissioning, right, as a job, um, where I needed to be able to have the words that would make the visual that I wanted comprehensible to someone who might speak a different language, um, to anyone who might read it, they would exactly know exactly what I'm saying in the smallest number of words possible. Um, and I think that that's a crucial skill for a dungeon master. You do your scene setting speech. If it takes a full two minutes, the party is going to forget about um, the little details that you said. You need to be able to get across the key details about the environment or the character that you're describing in a very short amount of time. You need to create an image right away that's going to stick in someone's head. Uh, for me, that means frequently focusing on the character's silhouette. Like, I was describing that guard off the top of my head just a second ago. Like, twin braids, halberd, is like, hair is a visual that will stick out to people a lot of the times. Um, if you imagine, like, the, the lighthouse, you can, you can, like, be like, okay, and she's standing in the lighthouse, the light coming off behind her, and we see the silhouette of her braids and her halberd. And, like, you create that image really quickly, um, then that will stick in someone's head um so you need these distinct shapes of hair of like capes and cloaks of distinct weapon shapes like a halberd there's all sorts of good ones but um really distinct images that will get in your head crisply are really important to get something across to a player quickly as well that's awesome i was going to ask you if you had tips but you really kind of summed it up with having just specific shapes and everything um i just I listening to you describe that was actually very vivid for me too. Just I could picture everything that you were saying. Um, that's a really cool experience that you had um, being able to work for wizards. And then especially doing that, like you said, is a very important DM skill uh, yeah. just in and of itself. So getting a chance to just kind of hone that a little bit in like a professional setting was probably pretty cool. Yeah, and definitely helpful um, for running games. Do you want to talk a little bit about uh, your time with wizards? Um, I can speak to it a little bit. Um, I have a lot of stuff that is um, under NDA uh, because they work really far in advance, so I can't talk a lot of details about things that are coming out. Um, 
But one thing that is cool is I'm, I'm really proud of the creative work that I did on a set that's upcoming in a few months, um, which is uh, Commander Legends Battle for Baldur's Gate. Um, it's a Magic the Gathering set that is uh, Dungeons and Dragons themed and uh, set in and around um, the city of Baldur's Gate in the Forgotten Realms. Um, so I'm pretty excited about that. I concepted um, bajillion characters and locations and stuff, um, and that card set will get spoiled here pretty soon. So that should be really exciting. Um, it was very cool to work with the established lore of D&D and the lore of Magic the Gathering, um, work those together and imagine the iconic images of D&D in sort of a fresh context. So, so some of the stuff for D&D, even from 5th edition, is a few years old now, and it doesn't feel quite as um, relevant today. Um, so it's great being able to work on making more images um, to depict that world that all of us who play D&D know so well in a fresh way. That's really cool. And I always think that... Um using like magic the gathering cards or something is a good way almost to use them as like a random table like if you need a monster like you know throw a bunch of magic cards out you know and you can um you can even make like little sets like oh your characters are going through the forest we'll get a bunch of green cards and throw them together and you have you know encounters encounters basically right so um to see more of a direct crossover with like D stuff would be really cool yeah um, I think people really enjoyed AFR, the Adventures of the Forgotten Realms magic set that came out, and I think that Baldur's Gate will feel like a really nice follow-up. Also, you can know that it was worked on, uh, the creative was done by someone with an immense amount of knowledge about uh, Forgotten Realms, um, Baldur's Gate specifically, and Dungeons and & Dragons, so d- definitely a lot of love um, poured into it by me. Are there, are there other uh, topics in uh just in like dungeon mastering in general that you're like really passionate about or would like to to talk to people about um my brain is like really on my uh making cool visuals thing so um you may just get more about that but no that's perfect because i i don't think we've actually had a lot about visuals specifically um so any like tips or anything you can give that would help listeners figure out how to be better at doing that i know that's something that i sometimes struggle with as well uh, is just being able to draw that picture in other people's minds yeah yeah uh you know i i grew up as a whiteboard dm where all of the little maps that i made and um when i needed to draw a monster or whatever i would scribble it out on a whiteboard um, I played D&D when I was growing up, like, in the public library or in classrooms or in the basement at my church or whatever, all sorts of weird places. But the constant theme was whiteboards. Uh, so I got very used to drawing on drawing those. Um, but since um, COVID-19 especially, um, I haven't had... I haven't been able to do that, right? Drawing on a whiteboard and presenting it on a screen is very difficult. So I think I'm relying even more on my ability to describe things to people uh, when I'm playing games over Discord or Zoom equivalents or whatever. Um, but one of the things that has really helped me with... I talked a little bit about like characters and the visit of characters, how to make them stick in people's heads. Um, 
I think something that people struggle with a lot is the visuals of their locations and their set pieces. If you have this cool idea for a location you want a combat encounter to take place at, but you can't convey to your players what that location looks like, you're going to end up confused the entire combat. Players will be like, wait, where am I? Where are the monsters? How do I get up there? That happens all the time to people I've seen. Um, so being able to very specifically describe what your environment actually looks like um, is crucial. I absolutely recommend people um, watch a YouTube video on how to draw 3D. Basically, my tip is going to be three-dimensionality. Three-dimensionality is the number one way to make your locations visually comprehensible. Um, if you're describing a location, and it also makes it more exciting. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but if you're describing a location and you are talking about the, if you if you're describing this big flat area and you're like, here's where the woods are and here's where the rocks are, or whatever, it's harder to landmark it. Um, but if you put things above other things, above other things, below other things. Um, you create falling hazards for your players, which is lots of fun. Um, but also, um, you can separate the area that you're talking about in a lot more clear way. Um, if you say, okay, down here in the middle of the canyon, uh, we have a few rocks and here's where some kobolds are. And then up on your right, you can see a platform that someone's constructed out of wood that's about 40 feet above you, built into the side of the canyon. And you can see some archers up there. And then you can see even higher up, 80 feet, the top of the canyon, where water is spilling down in from above and causing rain to fall on the kobolds, on the archers, and on you. You know... Creating these different levels um, helps the players understand the visual of the location you're describing um, a lot more clearly, in my experience. Um, you're able to lay out exactly where things are um, in a way that's more understandable. I think it's because people understand height better than we understand distance. Um, when you say someone, someone is 900 feet away, that doesn't mean very much. But when you say someone is uh, the height of a small house above you, um, that means a lot more. Yeah, that makes sense. And like you said, just like a, like a big open field. I mean, even if you tell them measurements and stuff, it's really easy to just forget what that is. But like you said, you kind of broke up that last example into like almost zones almost. Yeah. 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 Uh, and then, and then it doesn't really matter where they're at because they're just separate. They're all separate zones that can, you know, somewhat interact with each other. Right. Exactly. The, you don't have to have the specific measurements worked out every time as long as, and I'm totally willing to fudge what a player's speed is or whatever. If they're, um, trying to get somewhere, it's like what what makes sense for you to be able to get to matters way more to me than the actual distance or whatever. If I'm trying to be rude to a player or restrict them from having too much influence on a scene, that's the only time that I'll be like, "What is your speed?" Um, <laughs> otherwise, you know, it's more fun if players can accomplish what they want to accomplish, get where they want to be, um, and height does a lot more work to differentiate the difficulty of getting to different um, 
places than pure lateral distance does. Um, and when you're playing, are you mostly playing theater of the mind then? Um, yeah, I like I will. Well, certainly nowadays, yes. I don't use miniatures. I haven't used miniatures since um, since fourth edition. As soon as five E came out, those all went in the box. Um, <laughs> I didn't have very many, but um, I find that constrict yeah constricting people's experience of the game to a war game um where you have to measure out exactly how far you're moving and check your angles of who you can see um prevents players from feeling yeah like they are actually within the experience um they worry too much about the mechanics of moving around and lining up their cone for their burning hands. Where I'm just going to tell you, your cone of burning hands can hit five kobolds or whatever. Five of the eight. I don't care. Uh, and I'll make up the things that I need to make up at the, in the moment um, in order for the players to understand the situation. And I'm always willing to let them do a little bit more than um, might necessarily be allowed by the rules, uh, because I want them to succeed. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. I think um, for me, I think I tend to rely on maps a little bit to uh, take the burden off of me for having to describe and re-describe a scene multiple times, and and to some yeah. degree, just having to remember what it looks like. You know, like. Where am I at again? Um, well, let me think. Uh, okay, you were about here, so this is what you can see from there. You know, so in that regard, having a map is nice. But also, I would say that I probably don't have you know a good amount of skills in that visual description, as you've mentioned. Um, so getting better at some of those things, I think, would help me to run theater of the mind just a little bit better. I I absolutely can't recommend it enough. Um the more I'm able to detach the story that I'm telling from technical pieces and technical maneuvering, um, the more it feels like a story and less like a game. And I think that the storytelling, even of combat, um, is more powerful than the numbers and words on the papers that we wrote Dungeons and & Dragons. Um, and are you, uh, you said you were running 5th edition, right? I currently run 5e. Yeah, I have run <laughs> Dungeons and Dragons of every edition. I have a little stash of very early first edition books that are from um, my dad's college best friend. Um, so I've run every edition of D&D, and I prefer fifth edition. I prefer the newest edition, um, partially because I think it enables theater of the mind um, gaming the best. Sure. Have you branched out at all into any of the like non D and D role playing games at all? Yeah, absolutely. I've played Pathfinder. I really like horror games, uh, so I run a lot of Dread, Final Girl, stuff like that. Uh, I've been playing a lot of Dialect recently, um, which is an RPG adjacent um, language and community building game. Um, I really like to try out whatever I can, but it's definitely true that I come back to 5th edition as the classic, the original that I'm most familiar with um, and love to teach and play. Well, you can always steal stuff from the other games and bring them back to D&D, so that's not usually a problem. What advice do you have for 
new dungeon masters. Yeah. Um, actually, <laughs> I used to run a DMs workshop for new DMs where we would um, get someone's um, intro to their plot. You know, basically how it, how it was run was people would sign up and they would prepare either a one shot or the beginning of a longer plot. And we would have them run like the first, what would be the first session of their longer plot as a one shot. Um, and it was me and a couple of other DMs would meet with them a couple of times in advance and workshop the content that they had prepared uh, for their one shot or for their plot. Um, and then we would gather players for them to be able to test it out. Um, and then I would sit in and play in a lot of those. I worked a lot with one player who kept coming back, who was always a little too afraid to run his own plot and kept coming back to our workshops to sort of retry out the beginning of his adventure, which meant that I played it um, several times. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, um, it needed workshopping. He got um, lots of feedback. Um, the kind of feedback that we gave varied a lot, you know, but um, the feedback I gave often focused on okay, here are the NPCs that you have provided in your one-shot or in your starting area. How do we make them more interesting and memorable? Um, why have you selected the identities um, and like careers or the classes of the NPCs that you've chosen? Um, and what, what, what can we do to make them more memorable? Uh, we turned uh, for that for that for that guy's plot. We turned one um like the, just like group of farmers that were supposed to be the people you were supposed to help. Um, we made them into giant sentient hermit crabs instead. Um, who had a hard time moving around and needed help instead because they <laughs> were too slow and big. Um, and it was just like finding the new weird takes on things to make the plots that you're coming up with more memorable. Um, so that was, that was good. Um, but um, we also talked a lot about being able to manage your players and manage your table because we had a lot of DMs come in who were quite introverted, um, which I think is the case with many people who want to DM and people who play Dungeons and Dragons um, that have anxiety about, you know, controlling and managing a group of people uh con controlling the environment and uh being able to talk over people when necessary those sorts of things can be really difficult um and so we talked about specific strategies that you can take to shut someone down who is taking over taking too much space at the table um there was a couple of players who would show up uh who were wanting to help but want would make a character that was so out there or so wild and we had we told the new dms you're the dm in this context and you have the agency to tell someone that this character that they've brought or that they want to play isn't a fit for the plot that you're going to run it's important that you be able to even even for just a one shot or whatever even if you're playing with people who you haven't met before uh you need to be able to set guidelines for yourself that are going to and for your plot that are going to make you feel comfortable and like you're able to actually have the story that you want to have uh and that means not necessarily allowing the 
um, Arakokra Artificer with the, the homebrew subclass, um, and who only talks in a bizarre, distracting accent. Having our like funny meme characters is something people like to do for one-shots and one-offs, um, but it doesn't lend itself to people being able to actually learn or enjoy the game. Um, th I guess this is coming back to the curate your playgroup, uh, but it also means curate the characters that you allow people in your playgroup um, to play. You actually do need to set guidelines about what's allowed. Like, I am super invested in my three-dimensional combat places and things. That means that I don't allow characters at first level who can fly at first level. Uh, because I want, in the early uh, part of an adventure, the falling damage to feel like a real threat. Uh, they have to find ways to fly or climb or whatever um, that aren't just built into their species uh, or what have you at the start of the game. Um, so the important piece of advice for new players, don't be intimidated by your players who've been playing for a long time. Um, you are the person running the game as the DM and you should claim agency over the story that you want to create. Absolutely work with your players, um, but don't let them talk over you. Don't let them decide things for you. Uh, believe in yourself. And if that means sometimes you need to duck behind your DM screen and like take a breath and resituate yourself, remind yourself that you're in charge, yeah, remembering that you're in charge is definitely some good advice because uh, especially as a DM, it's sometimes you, oftentimes you want to enable your players to to play the things that they want, but sometimes they don't work very well. Yeah, uh, you get to set guidelines. You get to set your home rules. Even if you've never DM'd before, I think you, you don't have to be confined to here's what's exact in all of the books here's the rules that wizards of the coast i know i worked for watsi and so it's like um blasphemous to say that you don't have to follow all of the watsi rules but uh but you really don't uh even when you're new um having your own things that you say and you set um helps you feel like it's your game and that's what it should be is there a, a channel or Twitter or somewhere that we can find you or that you would like to promote? Um, sure. Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at Justice Jameson. Uh, Justice, J-U-S-T-I-C-E, Jameson, J-A-M-E-S-O-N. Um, that's my Twitter. Um, you know, I'm also on TikTok, Instagram, a few other places. Uh, I'm a... I'm, I'm, uh, I've got a youthful spirit. I'm on the social media. <laughs> I also stream occasionally on Twitch at Urchin Advocist. Uh, so you can look me up there too if you like. Awesome. Uh, and I am gonna I'm gonna ask you one more question before Great. we wrap up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you could have any RPG book created, what would you put in it? <laughs> well, I have talked about um, for years and years uh, writing my own and putting my uh, homebrew setting into a book. Um, and I think I'm going to do it. I, I've been working on it for years. So eventually I'll finish and I'll decide it's done and publish it on something. Uh, so, of course, that's what's close to my heart. That's what I'd answer. Um, but a wider answer, not just drawing from my own things. I think that Dungeons & Dragons 
especially, is in desperate need of stories made by Asian and Asian American creators who foreground their experiences and backgrounds um, in ways that are not Orientalist and offensive. Uh, I think we've suffered from that for years as a gaming community. Um, and I know that there are people doing that work, and I wish that Watsi would pick one of them up and turn it into a, an official product. I think I saw a Twitter post or something like a couple days ago that was saying that they really should have more like like the monk is like the only kind of like Eastern yeah. like kind of class, right? But there's like a lot of there's a lot of things that people could pull from from those cultures and stuff that we just don't don't really currently see um i was like yeah that i mean it is kind of lacking and it would be really cool to see more you know classes and locations and stuff that are based on some of those cultural things that we just maybe haven't gotten to see yet i think there's amazing potential for people in the community right now um who could do that in a very authentic genuine way and I wish we would give them more attention. Awesome. Well, Justice, I had an awesome time talking to you. Thank you. You too, bro. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Dungeon Master's Toolkit Podcast. You can find links to all of the products and resources that we talked about on the show in the show notes. And if you'd like to join the community or find out how to be on the show, check out our subreddit or join us in our Discord server.